some point, if you're a separate company, you're going to evolve, especially the whole setup is premised on the idea that e-commerce is different than brick and mortar. Hi, I'm Daphne Howland. And I'm Ben Unglesby. We're senior reporters with Retail Dive, and this is our podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends. And talk about some of the things that don't always make it into our stories. This is The Backroom. Hello, welcome back to another episode of The Backroom. Today we are talking about e-commerce spinoffs. It's happened at Saks. It's happened at Saks Off Fifth. There's talk that it could happen at Macy's and Kohl's. Daphne, I think this idea just kind of entered into existence this year. Um, I'm trying to think of any other precedent for it. Like, was Saks really the first? I think Saks is the first and only, unless you count brands that went into bankruptcy and emerged online only, but that's really not what's going on here. Saks, as you said, did it, and then a few months later... Saks Off Fifth, and both of those entities took hundreds of millions of dollars from private equity to make that happen. And then HBC decided to do it again with Hudson's Bay Company, which is a Canadian department store. This is an HBC thing so far. Yeah. I mean, and to be frank, you know, it's it was never clear to me why HBC did this, unless it was a way, I mean, to get investment from outside. E-commerce is more maybe holds a little more allure than an integrated retail? Certainly, you know, when you're talking about a retail model as old as a department store, it's not the sexy retail model that Wall Street likes. The problem with e-commerce is, as you've documented, pure play e-commerce companies tend to struggle with profitability. So I'm not exactly sure Wall Street's fascination with splitting off what is essentially distribution asset and a branding asset. What Wall Street does is not, they're not thinking operationally when it comes to how to arrange subsidiaries and separations and stuff like that. As I reported on this, a lot of people kept bringing up Sears. And Ben, that's something that you are quite familiar with. I think it would help if you could just kind of recap what went on over at Sears. Eddie Lampert was basically compartmentalizing assets. Like what happened and as a result, what happened to Sears, would you say? (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing because it's tough to even describe. And a couple of the editors here get angry every time we have to write about Sears just because it's such a fact-checking headache. <laughs> There's so many crossing wires there. I mean, so over the longer course of Sears's life, it became this multi-unit conglomerate. It developed an in-house finance wing. You know, it had department stores. It had outlet stores. Under Lampert, it acquired Kmart. It owned Land's End. It owned a lot of property, as most department stores did going into the century, because it made financial and operational sense. You weren't beholden to a landlord if you you owned the property. Once Lampert took over, you know there was a series of asset spinoffs. Sears Canada was spun off. Sears Outlet was spun off. Land's End was spun off. And most of the spinoffs 
Lampert kept a stake, if not control of the spinoff company. I mean, he was involved on just about every side of, of the transaction. He was CEO of Sears, majority shareholder. He was a lender to Sears. I mean, just financial engineered the company into this, I mean, complex morass of entanglements. I think that's probably where the comparison with the e-commerce spinoff goes is it adds complexity because when you spin off a Sears brand, you know, Sears Canada, Sears US, well, they share a name, they share a brand. Now they're operating separately, but not entirely independently. And same goes with when you spin off Land's End or, or any, other, any other unit when Sears spun off its real estate into Seritage, into a REIT, which Lampert held a massive stake in, Sears started paying rent to this spun off REIT. So it creates all sorts of new legal and financial entanglements that didn't exist before they, because they were all housed under one roof and the company only had to answer to itself with these parts of its business. So, so far this tracks pretty well. Your description of Sears is tracking with what's going on as far as we can tell over at Saks and HPC. The difference is with Sears, it took, I don't know, a hundred years. How, how, I mean, the Sears has been years now of decline and bankruptcy and reconstitution. And this Saks spinoff is six months old. I mean, it happened in March. We don't have, it's, it's all, it's nothing but optimism on the part of some of the people I spoke with who were familiar with the spinoff and definitely want to see it happen elsewhere. People who have operational knowledge of retail are <laughs> amusingly, they have some choice words about the whole idea. Um, and then there are a couple analysts who are a little bit more wait and see sort of neutral about the idea. But operationally, you know, the Wall Street guys are pretty dismissive of the operational guys because they say, you know, that's old school. Yeah. An investor who is leading this to, uh, you know, today's investor, they have no incentive to really care about the future of the operations, frankly. They make money today, potentially, from a transaction like this, no matter what happens two or three years ago, unless this ends up in court and some of it gets clawed back, which is what has, you know, many have tried to do in, in the case of Sears. <laughs> but if, 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 if operations are degraded, the, the people making money off it today, they don't have to care. I mean, it's not their job to care. It's their job to make money today. If you're talking about someone who, is, who sees a trade here, for the Macy's investors that have just been holding the stock and collecting dividends for the past few decades and hope to for the next decades to come, they might be affected and they have reason to, to look pretty hard at this. If you're an activist investor looking to make you know, a quick you know, tens of millions of dollars, why should you care? It doesn't affect you. I mean, one argument they make is that an e-commerce company will be able to attract tons more money and superior, super duper tech talent. It does remain true, however, that you still are Saks Fifth Avenue. So whereas a place like Farfetch is seen as an e-commerce company steeped in tech and dependent on tech and leveraging tech. I think the market might take a little while to really be convinced that even a, an online only Saks Fifth Avenue is a tech company. That remains to be seen. 
jump in here if if you disagree. But for those who are who are saying this this can increase investment in the company, it can attract talent. It, it, when, if you look at that critically, it's hard to see a reason why. Like why is that the case versus if you just keep it in house? I mean, Saks has. If if you're an integrated retailer, you have an e-commerce wing, you have a physical wing. They're housed under the same business. You could even put an office in California to work on tech. I mean, which is you know what Walmart and other retailers have done have kind of spread their their offices around. If it's if it's a matter of geography, if it's a matter purely of branding, I mean, it's it it, it could be just a matter of pure perception, but it's. It's hard to see a material reason why it matters, whether they're integrated or separate in terms of attracting talent. They say it matters financially and and potentially, you know, as far as the tech side of human resources. Operationally, though, I could not find anyone who could tell me that operationally this would work. That's not actually true. Sachs itself is telling me that operationally things are working very well. You know, if you start to ask questions, when you start to get to the nitty gritty about what happens with returns, the questions become less answerable. I think part of it is we're talking about six months of operating this way. Although apparently in speaking to a couple of people who used to work at Saks in the operations, some of this was actually being set up last year. So running two companies, especially since the customer itself has to not know. You have to be able to present a united front, which in itself, I think that retailers have a hard time doing that even when they're not two companies. It says you have this online. It says you have it in the store. You know, you don't have my size. Trying to get the customer who's expecting things to be smooth online or off to be satisfied, no matter whether they're looking at a website or the racks or the shelves or whatever. Well, in the past, I mean, the past 20 years of retail evolution has been, and this is, this is broad, broad based across the industry has been deeper and deeper and deeper integration of your physical stores and your online stores, tracking each other's inventory becoming as a company as completely indifferent to how your customer buys, just as long as they're doing it in the most convenient way and you have all the options available to them, creating one sort of seamless experience between physical and digital. So much technological investment going on today is, is into the integration between the two entities so that there are no hiccups. You can do f store fulfillment and the website knows exactly how much stock is in, is at a local store. You could do returns from an online purchase to a store online. The branding is seamless. The, the entire experience is seamless. And, and this seems to at least complicate that in terms of, I mean, you, you cited what, uh, something like 150 separate agreements uh, on the SAC side? Just for the operating agreements or yeah. apparently another hundred or so covering other aspects. And, the, and these are legal agreements. These are contracts signed. Right. They, yeah. which they govern things like fees and incentives. And so that's 150 potential disagreements. <laughs> right. Right. Or, or 150 potential renegotiations because of how things might be evolving. That's 
I, I, this is one of the few times I really want to time travel because I can only imagine that even with a web of agreements that, or scaffolding, I don't know, I don't know how, like what the proper metaphor is for 150 operating agreements, but at some point, if you're a separate company, you're going to evolve, especially the whole setup is premised on the idea that e-commerce is different than brick and mortar. What happens to the evolution? Is the evolution stymied or is it just inevitable? In which case, what do you do when you have a two-year-old pure play e-commerce, you know, sax.com versus a two-year-old pure play brick and mortar sax? How do they negotiate when their operating agreements are up for renewal? You know, I, I, I can't believe that these are agreements signed in perpetuity. So as, as things evolve, you know, what comes next? Do you have any sense of how this works technologically? Will, will physical SACs pay e- the e-commerce wing for, for technological services? Like how, how, do, how is IT set up? Do they, do they use one integrated system or is one of them going to have to build out a separate system and they'll have to communicate? Like, how, do you have any sense of how that works? So I noticed that I, I got an announcement about they had two different people that they brought on to lead their HR teams. And w- one, for e- one for each company. Separate. Sorry, one for each. One for each company. Which, yeah. by the way, is is inefficient. <laughs> I mean, that's, right there. <laughs> that's why companies merge is because you can you can create efficiencies by having one one set of staff for for a single function across multiple units. So Sorry, they answer that. No, no. I, I mean, absolutely point taken. They answer that when it comes to merchandising, which as you know, as you just discussed, merchandising for online and brick and mortar have to be as seamless as possible. People just expect to be able to access things. It's not like in the old days when you could literally buy a house from the Sears catalog but you couldn't exactly walk into the Sears store and buy a house. So people saw the Sears catalog and the Sears store as almost two different retailers until, by the way, e-commerce came along. And even then, even years ago, people started thinking of Sears as one thing. So the merchandising teams, the marketing teams are at sax.com. Which means the physical the physical sax is wholly dependent on a team that it has no control over. No, but they they pay for those services. So that brings up all kinds of questions. Everyone is telling me that those questions have been anticipated. That you and I could not think of a scenario that they didn't already think of as they came up with the operating agreements that they needed. That of course remains to be seen. But you know, sax.com also owns the IT, which I don't think there's so the brick and mortar has the services that you can only accomplish at brick and mortar, a, a physical return, alterations, things that happen in the store belong to the brick and mortar side, and that just leaves them with, you know, less valuable assets except whatever real estate that is, you know, a gem which for Saks probably is quite a bit. Well, and that's another thing, you know, talking about the evolution, it seems like just in the last several years, retailers have finally learned to stop 
setting their stores and their online stores in into competition with each other and counting a sale in any channel as a win um, and not not penalizing stores for sales made online, vice versa, and, and also realizing the synergies, which I hate the word synergies, but the synergies between the two. I mean, Kohl's closed several years ago, closed a bunch of stores in an attempt to you know shift those sales online, but they don't. It's not a one to one shift. You lose a store, and sometimes you lose an online customer too. They work together in ways that can be hard to measure, hard to understand. So the fate of your ecom and your stores are very intricately linked in ways we understand and in ways we don't. And so <laughs> unlinking the two units. Just, uh, I mean, to my mind, it just creates so many unnecessary <laughs> complications. I mean, it's, it's creating complications out of thin air because this idea did not exist until this year. The question I try to answer in my story is, why is this happening with department stores? We've heard the rumors and, and people will, there's a definite buzz in the industry right now. Macy's is under pressure. Um, I couldn't confirm anything, but apparently Macy's is actually talking about this or is being forced to talk about it. Kohl's apparently could be next. Think about the concept being applied to a place like Target or Dick's Sporting Goods. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone is, I don't even think the financial wizards on Wall Street are particularly interested in enticing the e-commerce side of Walmart to separate from the physical side of Walmart. There's something about department stores that is leaving them vulnerable to this kind of surgery. Yeah. Well, for, for one, their stock is cheaper, you know, in aggregate, which makes it a, a more profitable effort if you're if you're the activist. A candidate for unlocking value, as the activist <laughs> exactly. investors exactly. like to say, <laughs> uh, which go. is true. And, and then, and then it's sort of that becomes an existential question for the department store. You know, what is it about us, Macy's? From what I understand, I mean, obviously, I'm not privy to their IT department, and I'm not sure I could evaluate it if I were. But Macy's apparently has a pretty sophisticated e-commerce system and is working pretty well as an omni-channel retailer, which means that the e-commerce side is, is working with the brick and mortar side. So if they're pretty much as sophisticated as they can get, or, you know, are on their way to being as sophisticated as they can get, it's just a money play. I mean, it's hard to see it as anything but that. And for, for the exact reason that this is, I mean, or, or, or at least a sign of that is that it is happening at department stores and no one is walking up to Target and trying, even trying to tell Target this would be a great idea <laughs> to unlock value. Yeah. It starts to sound a little bit like a silly question. Like, what, wait, what are you talking about? So kind of going back to Sears, if you go down this road where you're already separating you're thinking of your e-commerce as an asset, carving out your real estate. Does that mean that at Sears, as various aspects of its physical or, or concrete assets besides its land and buildings, things like the IP of some of its brands, did that invite the kind of maybe more cynical financial engineering did it sort of 
perpetuate it, do you think? I think what happens is savvy people start looking at a company and wondering, and especially when that company is in decline, that is when it starts to starts to sort of invite the speculation. Because when everything is humming along and there's tons of profits, I mean, nobody's asking Amazon, nobody except maybe the government is asking Amazon to spin off its cloud business, <laughs> which is much more profitable than its retail business. When everything is humming along and everyone's making money, no one questions, why is a company composed one way over the other? If everyone's making a ton of money, no one cares, by and large. When a company goes in decline, people will start asking the question. And, 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 and this, is, this is Wall Street people. This could be the board. Even, you know, they start asking the question, is this company worth more as a whole or as a sum of its parts? I think if you're an investor right now, you are looking at the, on the one hand at the stock market and it's just going up and up and up. You're looking at some of these e-commerce IPOs and there's been a lot of them just in recent years. So we're starting to get a feel for what an e-commerce company can IPO for. And they have nice tech-like multiples, even though a lot of them are loss makers. And so you see a department store and, and the struggles that it's having. And you start looking at, are there ways to divide this up so that if you sell them off separately, they're worth more than what you can make with the, with the stock integrated. And again, if you look at it critically, it's hard to see why an e-commerce entity alone would be worth more than an integrated company. I mean, I mean, it's been somewhat of a mystery for, for years why traditional retailers are so undervalued as compared to uh, Amazon and pure players when a lot of them have been, you know, Macy's up until last year has been pretty profitable by and large over the course of its life. I mean, its sales have, have wavered, but it's been a pretty staid profit-making enterprise on the whole. But if you're if you're just looking at the stock value in, in the short term, maybe you're starting to wonder if there's ways you can make money. And, and Macy's has been pushed by activists before. Uh, you might recall a few years ago, there's Land and Buildings Activist Fund tried to get Macy's to sell off its own properties, which Macy's did not <laughs> because there's a lot of good reasons to hold on to it. And yeah, you can make a lot of money in the short term, by selling selling it off, but but then you become subject to leases. You have fewer assets to use for for secured loans. Which, by the way, Macy's had those assets available last year when there was a major financial downswing during during the pandemic, and it was able to raise a lot of liquidity in an emergency situation at fairly low prices because it had property on hand that it could use to secure loans and get itself a good credit rating and good interest rate. So so people, yeah, I mean, especially when a company is in decline, you start looking at those those assets separately and wondering if you can make money by separating them out, but you can kill the company <laughs> in the process because there was a reason why those assets were all together under one under one organization to begin with. That's why this feels like an existential moment for Saks in particular, and possibly for department stores in general, if the structure isn't uh, viable anymore, if if this is not the way to to run a retail business, I guess the next question is how do you fix it? Which uh, you know Macy's has been trying to answer now for years, and closing stores has has been a part of the answer. But closing stores in order to get to your ideal footprint is a lot different than closing 
off stores from the rest of your operation. It is difficult to see how this helps Macy's out of its situation. Again, I mean, Macy's has been working toward, like every other retailer, working towards integrating its stores and online. And this creates new complications where there weren't any. And it creates inefficiencies where there weren't any. (laughs) It creates potential legal entanglements and legal difficulties. It creates potential brand difficulties. Again, these did not exist before. Well, and they don't exist now. We, we don't know where these discussions are going to, we're going to go, but they don't exist at present, but they could, they could very, I mean, again, the fact that you have to have 150 agreements to try to make this work and, and maybe that's what it takes, but, and you could compare it to a brand hiring a, an outside manufacturer, which is something brands didn't always do. You know, they used to control their own factories, own their own factories, but this Man, it's just difficult to see how you can separate e-commerce and stores in a world where omni-channel has suddenly become king, the key to succeeding in retail. Honestly, it's going to be very interesting to see what Macy's does because there were a couple of people I spoke with who said, no, no way. There's there's no way that Jeff Jeanette is going to do this. But you know, Oliver Chen at Cowan and Company said he's going to have to bring it to his board because that's just, to your point, there's money involved and there's the interests of the investors. Well, and let's not forget that executives are shareholders as well. Right. I mean, the, the bulk of their compensation is in shares, so they could make money as well from a transaction like this. So I think it remains to be seen whether this is a redefinition of a department store in the 21st century, or if this is a little bit of a, the luxury version of the engineering that would happen that went on at Sears. It'll also be interesting if, if some of these spinoffs happen and the IPO will finally get, get a d- better window into uh, what the actual performance of these e-commerce units are with traditional retailers, because they're usually not broken out in financials. You, you might get a, you know, a percent growth, maybe every now and then a profitability number, but very rarely do we know how much profit an e-commerce unit generates within a larger retail company, partly because it is so integrated <laughs> and difficult to define what is a store sale and what is a what is an e-commerce sale. But if there's a Macy's e-com IPO, when Saks reportedly is going to IPO the, the e-com unit, we'll at least get to see how those how those units do and it'll be it'll be interesting and it'll also be interesting to see how how Saks is doing you know a year or two or three from now because you know there's been reports that sales have gone have been doing extremely well since the spinoff but that spinoff has happened during one of the best times for retail and in modern memory <laughs> everyone's doing great right now in retail because of because of stimulus and vaccines and pent-up demand and posting against the pandemic so i think the real test is going to come in in the coming years and when you know retail sales aren't at the heights they're at right now Exactly. I have a feeling that's probably why everyone's in a hurry to (laughs) not only IPO, but spread the idea to other retailers. All right. Well, I've become a student of Sears once again, because this comparison keeps coming up when it comes to sex. Yeah, it's yeah, it it'll be interesting to see if the if the idea actually actually spreads and uh, and what becomes of it. 
This episode of The Back Room was produced and edited by Caroline Jansen. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.